Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. We are recording. Wow, it's the last podcast of the year. How about that? We made it again. So everybody doing good? Everybody home for the holidays? It's the happy new year section of of the year. I always found new year's really depressing. I don't know. Even when I was like a kid, just, I don't know. When I was like nine, I'm like, oh, geez, I'm going to be 10 next year. (laughs) (laughs) Double digits, man. It's all downhill. The time does slip past quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. I I always liked New Year's Eve because as a kid, because um, we would have Italian sausage, which was apparently good luck at Uh midnight. So I was always because, you know, my life is food based. And uh, so I would just look (laughs) forward to the Italian sausage and, and Dick Clark. See when I was yeah yeah but when I was in high school or actually all through my life but high school is when I particularly remember it my we are of Germanic heritage and my mother would on January first always cook sauerkraut and sausage and man that smelled really bad if you had been out with your friends doing stuff you weren't supposed to smelling that at <laughs> like noon on January first was just not an inviting smell it felt like revenge to me see that was New Year's Eve for us. I grew up with sauerkraut and pork, but it was always for New Year's Eve because I thought the idea was something it had something to do with the sourness of the passing year and and it was supposed to be good luck for the coming year. And so maybe that's why we were so bitter. We were always eating it a day late. I don't know. <laughs> we generally do that still. We still have sauerkraut on New Year's Eve for that reason. I just hated it. So the idea, Joe, was that every every year past was sour. I mean, that's uh, really a pessimistic way to go through life. Yeah, well, I don't know the, the Germanic roots of this tradition. <laughs> I just know that uh, it was it was something that, that we grew up with that, too. Well, it's like the equivalent of like setting a boat on fire in some Asian and Viking cultures and set it at sea. I think that's probably it. Yeah. Speaking of, of interesting traditions, remember, there's that one Montauk where all of the Korean immigrants come out to Montauk on the first sunrise of New Year's Day. And they gather at the lighthouse. That's so cool. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. It's very neat. It's very cool. I've never actually been able to rouse myself to go out and witness it, but my daughter actually did. I think last year she was there and she said it was pretty cool. Um, but something, something about in Korean tradition where furthest, yeah, you, you want to meet the sunrise. Yeah. Furthest point east. That you can. That's cool. I know. Yeah. Oh, that's the furthest point. Well, east. it is in New York state. For New Yorkers. Yeah. It is for a lot of the the east coast i think right yeah for the far (laughs) east it's nowhere near it (laughs) yeah very cool so let's do our introductions so everybody knows who we are if you don't know who we are right now you have just not been listening enough so everybody should know (laughs) there will be a test yeah there will be a test so back again it's bill sutton hey bill hi annette i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group and brendan o'reilly hi brendan Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the features editor. And you're probably a father by now, but we can't talk about that yet. (laughs) (laughs) That that didn't come out well. (laughs) That's just really weird. Hiya, Brendan. How are you? Good good to have you back. Joe and Bill could all be fathers too. You don't know. 
if we're just speculating on who's a father and who's not. It would be quite a surprise, but I guess you never know. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? <laughs> it would be a real surprise. We got know. Daddy O Joe Shaw. Hey, da- hey, Joe. How are you? <laughs> it's Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And my name's Annette Hathel, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And we are getting a little punch drunk here at the end of 2021. Um, but our last issue of the year is technically we're all on vacation then. Um, if you want to call it, which by the way, can I just talk about how cool it is that that's always been a tradition that, that seems to, seems to be true for all the different publications on the East end. Uh, it's a great tradition. You know what they really do it because they would, they weren't able to really sell enough ads to make it worth their while to print an edition. Right. Well, Joe, it's also because we don't get Monday holidays. Brendan's right too. It's a, it's an HR thing. It's for all the Monday holidays we work, we, oh, we end up yeah. getting this time yeah, off yeah. in exchange too. So, so we've been told. <laughs> so we've been told. It's We're giving great. away all these secrets on the it's podcast. Great. The Monday holidays, they, they've enticed a lot of us back into the office during COVID by like buying lunch. So <laughs> those of us yep. working a lot at home are like, oh, I have to go in the office. There's going to be sandwiches. <laughs> free lunch. Free lunch. <laughs> no free lunch free parking. So we thought we would take this time of the podcast to talk about the top 10 stories of the year. This is something that we do in the last issue of the year, because since we are all off, we are not producing a live issue. So we sort of just take a look back over the year of what's been the big news. So I have the top 10 list here. You guys are going to have to walk me through this because a lot of these I'm not that up on. So should we just go down the list? Yeah. And and with the, with the proviso here that obviously the list we put together for print and that we're gonna talk about here is a very subjective list. There's probably 30 or 40 stories that that probably were candidates for the top 10 stories of the year, but uh, we'll tell you what we thought the top 10 were. Well, the first one is, um, is of course, the story that's still going on and that's the impact of COVID-19. I think what's interesting out here is that we were, are fairly fortunate in that we live in a part of the world where vaccinations are fairly high. We have an older population in general and um, there doesn't seem to be the, the suspicion of vaccines that we see in other parts of the world. And we also have a lot of fresh air and outdoors. Like we're not so cramped where disease spreads quite so readily. So what's our take on the COVID impact out here? As it, and it seems like the business has ironically done really well after we got through that first stretch last year. Um, everybody was concerned that a lot of businesses wouldn't survive, but in a way it almost seems like we had a boom time because so many people left New York and came out here and set up, um, permanent house at their normally summer residences. So, um, it seemed like it was a really busy summer. And so I'm wondering what COVID-19's impact is from where we sit. It seems like 2021 was far better for that than 2020 for our local economy. Yeah. I think economically, uh, the region's biggest problem was staffing. Uh, to keep up with the demand uh, throughout this year and especially this summer. And I think uh, the restaurants in particular say they left a lot of money on the table um, just because they were not able to staff up to deal with it. But, but I think you're right. One of the interesting things at the end of the year, uh, I think we started to see some of the benefit of having the high vaccination rates locally, which is that uh, in December we reported that the Stony Brook Southampton Hospital had, uh, uh, they saw their numbers going up as far as inpatient care in their COVID ward, but that was 11 beds filled, which is still well below what the peak was uh, during the early stages uh, when there wasn't a vaccine. And, And even those 11 patients, none of them 
was on a ventilator. Therefore, there is some evidence there. Or in the ICU. Or in the ICU. And, and that's evidence that if they are unvaccinated, the types of treatments that are available now are a lot more effective than they were a year ago. And if they are vaccinated in their breakthrough cases, some people who have comorbidities and other problems can get breakthrough cases that are serious enough to put them in the hospital. But the number of fatalities seems to be being held in check regionally. And you have to think that the high vaccination numbers uh, have something to do with that. But isn't the big story really, I mean, the, the, you know, the overarching story is we still have COVID this year. We were, we were kind of, mm-hmm. we were kind of yes. promised or thinking or hoping anyway, at least that, that uh, 2021 would have been a lot better than 2020. And, and, and of course it, it was certainly better. Um, but, but I think, you know, we all were looking for that light at the end of the tunnel. And I don't, I don't know that we're there yet. Well, we have Omicron on the horizon and we also have, you know, a lot of developing nations that still can't get their hands on a first dose of vaccine mm. while we are all getting our boosters. So as long as, you know, that's, I think, a worldwide inequity that really speaks to the problems. And that there's, I think I just read this morning that the, the WHO is not recommending that healthy people even get a booster until the developing nations all get access to the vaccine. Yeah, they've been pretty consistent about that, actually. They've, they've, they've argued that the United States really should have held off even on second doses. Uh, instead, uh, you know, the focus should be, the focus certainly should be on getting everybody a first, first dose. But the problem is, without mandating vaccines, which I think uh, is maybe a step that would be a challenge to enforce, uh, I think we're probably getting, getting closer and closer to peak vaccination. I just think there's going to be some holdouts that you're not going to drag across the finish line on that. Well, there's also the whole idea of like, yeah, like in the developing nations overseas. I mean, I don't know what the issue is there with the low vaccination rates. I mean, part of it might be hesitancy among the population, but it also just might be distribution and just that mm-hmm. you have remote populations that there's just no way they can figure out how to get vaccine up there. I don't know exactly what the issue is. That's abs- I think those are, those are both issues. And I, I think, you know, circling back to our region, I think if the, the bottom line is COVID was top of everybody's mind for an entire calendar year again. And fortunately we were able to get schools back uh, teaching in, in person, but of course, students are all masked. Um, And as we went into December, uh, the state's mask mandate in public was was reinstated. And uh, we're clearly not through COVID. And and it took a full second year, a full calendar year, uh, another one. uh, And it doesn't, you know, quite frankly, we may be having this conversation a year from now. Sure. You know, it, it, it may still be here. Well, let's go to our next topic because we got a lot to get through. So we'll do this pretty quickly. The second thing on our list is the Shinnecock Nation and um, their efforts to open a casino and a hotel. And then what you what I don't think is on our list is also cannabis, um, which the mm-hmm. Shinnecock are looking to get involved in. So where are we with that? The casino plan, I believe they hope to break ground in 2022. And it would be on Shinnecock territory, just outside Southampton Village, along Montauk Highway. They have a site. Uh, it's a big 
gaming facility that they have in mind. But it's no table games. It's it's actually yeah, it's video games, video uh, lottery. They call it video slot machines, basically. And they have te- Texas Hold'em poker games, which um, is is a slightly different animal when it comes to po- uh, table games because uh, unlike roulette or blackjack, the house doesn't really make money on the game itself. They take what's called a rake for holding the game. They, they provide the dealer and all that, but they're not actually making money on the game itself. They're just providing then, yeah. the game. Yeah. So they'll be able to do that. So, um, well, but you're playing against each other instead of playing the house, right? Exactly. Right. You're, not, you're not beating the house in a, in a poker game in a casino. But the, can you just describe the rate? Cause I, I, I'm fairly familiar with this, but what do they do? They take like 5% out of each pot, 1% out of each pot. Bill, you're, you've, you've, you've done this more than I have. I don't know what the percentage is and I'm sure that it varies, um, by, by institution, but, but yeah, that's kind of the idea is they just take a percentage of the pot. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the places that I've played, I, I don't know that it's out of every pot either. It's, it, it could be, you know, a certain, every certain number of, of pots or whatever, but yeah, but yeah, that's how they make their money. And, and basically they, they're, they say that's just for providing the space and the table and they pay a dealer. I mean, there's, there's always a, a dealer that's employed by the casino to, to deal the games and all that. And I'm, I don't want to make it sound like I'm playing poker at casinos every weekend. It's certainly not that. <laughs> no. But you've had more experience with it than I have. Although I'm, I'm certainly curious about about what we'll see at uh, at yeah. Shinnecock because um, I do play poker occasionally, and that sounds like fun to me. Brendan, you hit the key point. You're not playing the house in poker, and you're playing other players, so that's the difference. But anyway, that's what they have in mind there. And but in addition to that, they also unveiled, as you mentioned, uh, and that they they move forward with plans for a cannabis dispensary and grow house uh, also on Shinnecock territory, territory right near the casino. And they also discussed the proposal for uh, a hotel and conference center that would be on tribe owned property in Hampton Bays called Westwoods. That's on the bluff overlooking Shinnecock Bay uh, that was actually the original spot where they had talked about a casino, but um, they they can actually build a conference center on that site without having to jump through nearly as many hoops. So uh, I think the idea is the, that that hotel and conference center would be sort of connected to the casino. And then finally, there's an idea on the table that's been on the table for a long time for uh, tax-free gas stations and, and convenience stores. Uh, on that Westwoods property, which stretches all the way down to Sunrise Highway, there are a lot of questions about how that would work because the property, as it gets towards Sunrise Highway, is kind of narrow. And uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of details to work out there. But it, the 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 but, big- but they're talk they're they're talking about an exit. Uh, I mean, whether it comes to fruition or not, they're talking about an exit right off uh, Westbound Sunrise Highway, right where, where the monuments. Where where the monuments are near, there's a parking area there where you would actually exit the highway, yeah. um, get your tax-free gas, and then re-enter the highway. So the the big picture is that the tribe uh, unveiled just a series of economic development plans, uh, one after another after another, and and I think these are not just pie in the sky ideas. These are legitimate, uh, on the table. They have 
a partner for the Cannabis Grow uh, facility and dispensary. Uh, they have partners. They're going to be working with uh, a major partner in putting a casino proposal together. Um, and uh, there's really no reason to think that, that the other proposals won't move forward as well. This could potentially, now it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring a lot of economic opportunity, but it's also going to bring a lot of infrastructure challenges, especially the casino right on Montauk Highway is going to be uh, interesting to say the least. So is this like a done deal or do they still have other approvals that they have to get? I would say not a done deal, but their ability to move forward with this is a lot better than it was when they first started talking about it 10 years right. ago. Okay, well, that's fair. That's fair. So let's move on to our next topic, which is the wind farm. This is the offshore wind field that, um, is it Orsted? Is that the name of the company? Orsted? And Eversource. Yeah. And Eversource is looking to build off of the South Shore, you know, off of Montauk and East Hampton and bringing ashore cables at Wayne Scott, which has been a big bone of contention. So one of the questions I have about this, and maybe you guys know this, is like, you know, I think that when you hear wind energy, there's always this, hey, you know, um, renewable energy, this will be great. But have we, have we really figured out like what the benefits, like, are we going to all start getting free electricity if this happens? And, you know, I just wonder, Certainly you know, not. I just think, yeah, exactly. I, like there's the only people that really benefit the electric company the um, are they the ones, you know, was it PSEG that we have now or, um, you know, do they get all of that electricity and then yeah. they just sell it back to us? I just, I just haven't quite figured out in my head what, yeah. you know, is there a benefit? You know, I'm all for renewables, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of suspicion. Yeah, well, certainly not, not, not all that electricity is coming to the east end of Long Island and it goes into the grid, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and we're still going to be paying. I, I, I doubt you'll see any reduction in what you pay for. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like, it's like we're taking on all of the burden, but it doesn't necessarily, is that kind of the, the, those who oppose it? Brendan, right. Brendan, you, it's sort of an offset where you're not using carbon fuels to make that electricity, right? Brendan, is that the. Well, a big benefit of it, that wind is clean energy. It's renewable energy. Uh, I think that the statistic was that this project was going to produce enough power to make to power every single home in the town of East Hampton at the very least. So when they have their clean energy goals about- Well, I think you need to be careful about, you need to be careful about that though, because I think they're, they're using it as an equation. It, it's gonna produce enough power- To do that. Um, to that, you know, that, that, that same amount of power would be able to, you know, to, to run every house in East Hampton, but it's not a, a one-to-one ratio. It's not, that power is not all going to East Hampton. Right. It might be sent like up island. So it's like, great, they're running enough power to East Hampton and Nassau County, that kind of thing. You know, everybody benefits from reducing carbon emissions. So whether they're reducing carbon emissions in Nassau or reducing it in Montauk, uh, everybody benefits and arguably Montauk benefits more uh, by slowing the rise of seas than people living inland in Nassau County do. Um, and yeah, it, it's an equivalent. Okay. So if they say we could power 10,000 homes and whether the 10,000 homes are here or there, um, but this is a project on top of another project on top of another project, as we're getting South Fork wind, they're doing sunrise wind. So South Fork wind is going to land in Wayne Scott. Sunrise wind is going to rain, is going to land 
uh, somewhere in Brookhaven. And if we can do enough of these wind projects, we'll get to the point where every single house is getting 100% of its electricity from renewables. But yeah, it's all it's all a calculation. And um, when the wind's not blowing as much or when demand's too high, they might be importing electricity that came from plants that are powered by natural gas. But it's all power that's being added to the grid and it's clean power that's being added to the grid rather than fossil fuels being added to the grid. Wind power is not necessarily cheaper than power that's being produced from natural gas or other ways that LIPA or PSCG gets energy. But when you look at an area like Long Island, we don't have a lot of land on Long Island where you could just drop a fossil fuel plant out in Wainscott, right? We don't have a lot of land to even do big solar farms. Solar farms don't have many places to go. They're ending up on old landfills. There was another solar farm where they were going to tear down trees to put in solar, which seemed kind of counterproductive. Uh, they're also going to put in a solar farm on the former Cousins Paintball site on Long Island. Uh, so wind is a great solution. Yeah. A lot in Calverton, right? The solar stuff up there and, and you're getting rid of farm fields to, to, to put in the, the arrays in Calverton, which, so what's the benefit there? Yeah, that's the benefit of offshore wind. We're not giving up any of our land, any of our trees. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What, what's the opposition? There's a lot, this is like, there's a, been a lot of opposition to this plan though. And that's what I'm like, not, is it just, are they afraid that the landing site's going to be ugly? Um, uh, is it that that's going to interrupt commercial fishing? I'm just wondering what of the complaints or the those who oppose this so heavily? I think it's it's two pronged. I think you you had the fishing, the the commercial fishing industry is really concerned that the wind farm is proposed in what has been traditionally a really important fisheries area, um, and I think. And, the, and the, the, ca the cable along the bottom of, of the ocean that runs from the wind farm, um, you know, to, to, to land, that that will somehow interrupt with fishing and you, you have electromagnetic uh, stuff coming off that that could harm the fish. There are concerns that, and I, there's some debate about the science on that, but that is one of the concerns, yeah. But I, I mean, this, I believe that they've relocated the farm the, the turbines to some degree in response to feedback from the fishing community. I don't think the fishing community is happy about them still, although uh, I think up in Block Island, uh, we have heard that fishermen up there have actually found some new fishing sites near the turbines that they've actually created some uh, some spawning sites and things like that. So we'll, we'll have to see, but then you mentioned- Also structure, which they usually like structure. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's yeah. what happened, uh, I believe, up, up off of Martha's Vineyard, uh, Nantucket. Um, the, the second problem is in Wainscott where the, the cable will come ashore. And the, the concerns there are mostly about the disruption uh, it's going to be to to install that cable on land on the beach. Uh, I think there's concern about uh, property values, all the obvious things that that uh, come with that. But quite frankly, I think the the Biden administration is pushing very strongly for this project, and it's probably going to be on uh, online by 2024. Um, and you should start to see some of the work being done in the new year, I would think. Yeah. I think it's scheduled to, to, to dig up the, you know, the beach in, in Wayne Scott this spring, spring or summer. 
Yeah. yeah. It's it's gonna it's gonna happen quickly. All right. They'll they'll move fast once once they can. They'll 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 start to move quickly. Stay tuned for that. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. So the next on our list, I think we could combine the next two items. Yeah, um, they are right? similar. Bay Street Theater in Sac Harbor and also the Waterfront Code in Sac Harbor. They're sort of intertwined. So in- the Bay Street Theater is basically about the Bay Street Theater looking for a permanent home. Bay Street has always rented their space on Long Wharf and Sac Harbor. And because of that, they've always argued that um, it's, it's a little difficult to... to really get supporters because a lot of people are afraid that they'll lose their lease and every, you know, they get a long lease from um, Patrick Malloy who owns that property. And he's been, they say he's been a very fair landlord, but at the same time, when you don't own your building, as a lot of people say, you don't own your business. So I think that it's sort of limited their ability to raise money to, to do things that they need to. They also don't have a ton of storage space there. So they have to rent spaces up in Riverhead for scenery and stuff like that. Um, so Adam Potter, a supporter of Bay Street. He's the head of an, a nonprofit organization called the Friends of Bay Street. And this year uh, sort of rattled the cages in Sag Harbor because uh, the Friends of Bay Street purchased several properties in the village. And, and, you know, the headline is that Bay Street is looking to build a new theater uh, down near uh, the John Steinbeck Waterfront Park. It's the old 7-Eleven property. Exactly, yeah. Um, Which was actually, the other interesting thing about this is that that was the area where the quote-unquote, you know, the locals could really go to buy, mm-hmm. you know, their Chinese food in the 7-Eleven, and there was a liquor store there. So it was very much like, you know, your normal kind of people, businesses, as opposed to restaurants that uh, a lot of the locals don't frequent or can't afford. Sure. It, it displaced a, a bunch of uh, businesses, which was uh, a little bit of a concern. But, uh, you know, we could talk about this for an hour. It's been a lot of intrigue because while at the same time, Sag Harbor Village is doing this waterfront code, which is designed to sort of change the rules about development in this very area and along the waterfront, whatever Bay Street would want to do would have to coincide with what whatever the new waterfront code uh, suggests they can do. Uh, these things are sort of happening simultaneously, but a lot of people um, whisper about what is the ultimate plan for friends of friends of Bay Street. They have a lot of properties that they're amassing, and there's some thinking that this may be about redevelopment of Sag Harbor as much as it's about building something uh, for Bay Street, that there may be some private investment uh, taking place around these projects. And, and 
Um, I, you know, I think all of that has created a lot of agita in Sag Harbor. I think everybody agrees that Bay Street is a terrific organization and a terrific theater that's worth finding a permanent home for. Uh, the unveiled plans are stunning, but they're also stunningly large, especially for a, a site that's right near the waterfront. And part of the whole point of the waterfront code development is to try and limit structures that block views of, of the waterfront. Um, so this is just, this year was, it's, it's crazy to think that, that this all happened just this year. It was a crazy year. Uh, but it's really just a, a story that we're just starting to report and probably will take the next two or three years to even begin to get uh, worked out. I mean, I think the subtext here is that it feels like very deep pocketed individuals have finally found Sag Harbor. I mean, I think that's sort of the, you know, it's just like there's a new crop of super money coming into the village. And so the question is, is that deep pockets who are simply there to for Bay Street? and who want to see Sag Harbor do well, or is it deep pockets who see an opportunity? Yeah. And, and I, think, I think the jury is out, mm -hmm. and I think it depends on who, who you talk to. You'll get different opinions on that. Um, uh, it's a very interesting little story, no question. It, it's, it's a big story that we've been watching for a year. Speaking of big stories, the next on our list is I believe this was our first podcast of last year, or at least the second one, which was about the January 6th, what would you call that? Insurrection. 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 What are we calling that now? I believe that's the, the term now. Because we can't say coup attempt, right? So we say insurrection. Oh, I think you just said that, Bill. <laughs> so the next on our list for the big stories of the year is um, our own Lee Zeldin, our Congressman Lee Zeldin, on January 6th. That felt like a pretty scary way to start last year. I'm going to let Brendan have the, the floor because I just tip my hat to him because last January, I think, I think he did a real public service by going through uh, the, the congressman's speech on January 6th, which was j given just a couple of hours after the violence that took place at the Capitol and, and broke it down as far as you know, the, the content. So I'll let him take the floor. So after this speech was delivered by Representative Lee Zeldin, who represents NY01 Congressional District, that's the east end of Long Island. It's, it's much of Western Suffolk, though not all of Suffolk County. I was tasked with taking his speech and going through it point by point to see like, well, where is he correct? Where is he incorrect? Uh, is what he's saying make sense or does it not make sense? And what I found was really breaking the sound sentence by sentence was there were times where he was saying things that were counterfactual. Uh, there were other times where he would say something where like, sure, those few words he said was true, but he's making an argument where he's leaving out all of the context that would undermine his argument. He called courts and election officials and, and an array of people rogue. He said there was rogue courts, rogue secretaries of state. But when you actually go through and you see, well, what commission made this decision? What judge made this decision? Oh, it wasn't actually some rogue person. It was a Republican appointed judge who was a lifelong Republican who made that decision. It was a Republican controlled election commission that voted, you know, four to one against what Lee Zeldin would have liked. So he was 
part of this group of representatives that wanted to reject Arizona's and Pennsylvania's electoral ballots for President-elect Joe Biden. Uh, the, in his argument, he also raised concern about how Georgia and Wisconsin administered their elections. And when I went through this, I just kept finding examples of how as much as he wanted to blame the Democrats or blame the media or say, you're not acknowledging that there was evidence-filled issues, um, what he wasn't acknowledging was the evidence that was contrary to the point he was trying to make. So, you know, the whole point of this was to say that Donald Trump should have had more electoral votes than he did, and he should have won more states than he did. But things, his grievances were not things that were strange. There were grievances like a court extended the deadline to register to vote. Okay, they extended the deadline to register to vote in a certain state, 35,000 more people registered, but guess what? More Republicans registered to vote than Democrats registered to vote. And it, it happened in a, in a pandemic. This was, right. some of these measures were in response to a pandemic. And these things happen all the time. They happen in response to hurricanes. So it's not odd for a judge to say, you have more time to register to vote. You have more time to send your ballot in as it might be, right? These things are common. It's not something that we've never done before and it just started with the pandemic. There is precedent for this. And for him to say that that somehow stacked the deck for Biden, well, it really didn't. You literally had more Republicans registering to vote in that time window than Democrats. So if anything, it helped Donald Trump out. So there really was no argument made in his speech of five minutes or so that would actually say that this state should have had its electoral ballots rejected. Well, of course, now we have a situation where the states have thrown it back to their own often Republican legislatures to rewrite their election laws. And so that next time they feel like they're going to have a better hand at deciding who will win the election. A lot of the congressman's evidence didn't hold up well to scrutiny as the year went on too, because I think uh, more and more of the states that in January where there were some, there were questions being raised, those questions have pretty much all been answered. And, and I mean, ultimately, look, I, I think it's important to say here that Congressman Zeldin on January 6th was very clear that he didn't support the violence that took place at the Capitol. On the other hand, he did get up on the floor of the house and give this speech, which really did support all of the inaccuracies that were fueling that effort. And he did it just within hours after that violence. And, and I'm, I'm, now we've entered the editorial part of, of this conversation. And I've just got to point out that since January 6th, Congressman Zeldin, who is running for governor of New York on the Republican ticket, has never as far as I can tell, answered a single question about January 6th. No one has ever posed him the questions. We have attempted for a, for a year to have those conversations with him and he, they, he will not allow questions about, he won't speak to us at all since January 6th. We have had no contact with our congressman despite rep repeated efforts. It's appalling, but someone needs to get Mr. Zeldin on the record about January 6th. And we've tried very hard to give him that opportunity to explain 
his positions, but he hasn't been willing to do that. And still it goes on as we come up on the next January 6th. Yes. Let's move on to the community housing fund. We're going to go through these last few kind of quickly. So the community housing fund, this is related to the community preservation fund in which the um, five East End towns are allowed to use a portion of the money they raise through that 2% transfer tax for housing, or is this an additional? No, actually it's in addition. It would be a separate tax. Okay. No, it's separate. It's modeled on the CPF. It's very, it's very similar to the CPF, but, uh, but different. And, and instead of the 2%, it, it's a, it's a half percent tax. It's not the villages, it's just the town. So the towns themselves are responsible for deciding how they're going to parlay that tax money into um, an initiative for affordable housing. So we haven't really seen this happen yet. And have any of the towns actually adopted this yet, or is it going to be on the uh, ballot? They actually have to, they have to come up with plans first for how they would spend the money, and then they'll put it on the ballot. And that's most likely all going to happen this year in 2022. Uh, very possibly start collecting taxes in 2023 if they pass. Uh, There certainly is a lot of support for affordable housing. Um, Assemblyman Fred Thiel, you got to point out this was a 20-year fight for him, and he stuck to his guns and finally got this in place. Uh, Governor Hochul signed the bill. Um, And the interesting part of all of this is that um, if if the town's do approve this, they can spend it in a lot of different ways. And, and that, you know, not having the money to do anything about affordable housing has been a big part of the stumbling block. So, but they'll, they'll have to, each of the towns is going to have to approve this in, in a referendum this year, most likely coming up. So it's still going to take a couple of years before we start seeing any money going to this problem. Right. It could be as soon as 2023 if it's approved in 2022. And and it, it could mean, I, Jay Schneiderman has said it's $15 million a year, most likely in Southampton town. And if you look at the CPF, what a lot of the towns did with the CPF is they borrowed money with, you know, unanticipated anticipated future revenue from CPF. So you could see potentially the same thing with affordable housing. If, if there's a plan and a project that they want to put in place um, or not as a project, but, you know, different funding, then, then they could take loans out over, you know, over money expect, they expect to earn over the next 20 years through this program. And rather than the building of new developments, this could actually be helping people get down payments for houses that exist, you know? Right. So just when you say affordable housing, it doesn't mean like a housing block of right. affordable apartments. It could they could parlay it into any number of different efforts. And one of the most logical might be helping people get down payments on house, housing stock that's already existing, since we're so limited on where we can build new things and the expense of building stuff out there. Sure. And improving accessory structures as well could, could be part of, of that plan that, you know, little things that you can do to, to spread the housing around, you know, different neighborhoods. All right. Next on our list. The East Hampton Airport debate, that goes on and on and on. Oh, boy. Yeah, we aren't going to talk about that for very long because, again, we could get bogged down and talk about it for half an hour. Um, the, the key thing is that this year, uh, the town's connection with the Federal Aviation Administration changed in a way that opens up new opportunities for what the town can do uh, with the airport. They range from closing the airport 
permanently, which uh, a, there is a group of people out there who are lobbying very hard for the town to do that. They would have the option of doing that to closing it temporarily and reopening it under different circumstances so that they could limit, they could maybe further limit, they could put curfews in place and things that they couldn't do uh, under the old connection with the FAA at the airport. Uh, they could just sort of revamp it in a new way if they closed the airport temporarily and then reopened it under a new uh, under new structure. Or they could leave it the way it is and just try to keep working uh, with pilots and other groups to, to try and address the concerns, the noise concerns, primarily coming from helicopter traffic. So. Yeah, that's the big thing is the helicopter services. I think that's what a lot of people, even if the airport stays open, they would like to see services like Blade, um, these kind of like the Uber of the helicopter world where you buy a seat on a helicopter, um, quote unquote, affordably, you know, like a $600 or whatever they charge, um, which is a lot cheaper than buying your own Learjet, I've heard. Um, so the, the question is, you know, if they could, because that's really the, the bane of the existence of a lot of people is the helicopters come in low, they come in frequently, they are much louder than a typical plane flying overhead. So that'll be, that's the big, the big thing that a lot of the people who really don't want the airport around really want to see the helicopters go away. So I think we'll see it. We'll see a plan within the next couple months. I think the, the East Hampton town board is is poised to take some action if they can if they can agree on a plan. But then the other interesting, which hasn't been sort of an issue as of late, is the seaplane thing, and that's the other thing is that theoretically, I guess these some of the the charter companies could use seaplanes and land in the bays, um, which we haven't seen a ton of. We've seen some of that, but um, I don't know, you know, how much power they have to regulate seaplane landings. But boy, being out on like Sag Harbor Bay on our boat and a really crowded July day, I could not imagine avoiding a plane coming in for a landing. But and the question is how you get people from the plane to, you know, to the shore and, the dock. you yep. know, and all that. And, and would people be eager to um, to do that? There's also the question of of whether the helicopters would just find other places to land if you closed East Hampton Airport, like Montauk Airport or the helipad in Southampton Village being two places, or maybe there'll be a whole nother option that we haven't even thought of. Even Gabreski in West Yeah, Gabreski being a possibility yeah. too, so. Yeah, I know the Montauk, I thought the Montauk argument was interesting. Those people are very concerned that if East Hampton closed down, that they'll get a lot of that traffic. And um, I think unlike East Hampton, Montauk is a privately owned airport. So that owner could take whatever um, traffic he's interested in taking. It's not as if there's going to be any kind of governmental entity that decides. I mean, you know, you have the limit on the size of the runway and stuff, but if the owner of that airport wants the helicopter money he could theoretically take it, I'm guessing. And again, the, the question to that is, is I mean, Montauk is so far east right. that that might be a good plan for some people who are going to Montauk or eastern East Hampton Town, but people who are going to eastern Southampton Town or western East Hampton Town, do they want to fly a helicopter into Montauk and then drive, drive back? Well, they could always go to Sag Harbor Airport, like it said. Yeah. In, was it the Vanity Fair yeah. story? Is that where it went? Yeah, Sag Harbor. Sag Harbor Airport. Airport. I don't know where they find these people to write these stories, but maybe yeah. they know something we don't. Maybe <laughs> yeah. there's an airport there that we're not aware of. Um, yeah, so fly Sag Harbor. It's going to be an airport uh, slash theater. <laughs> Sag Harbor. Yeah, right on the top will be flat roofed landing. The big takeaway was this was a big year for the airport conversation has been going on for 15 years. But um, 
in, in a variety of ways, but this was a really kind of a, uh, a crucial year for that conversation to evolve a little bit. Great. All right. So on to our next topic. Um, Sag Harbor Cinema reopens after the um, devastating fire of December 2016. Five years ago. How did that happen? Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so through the, the Sag Harbor partnership, a new organization was founded and they were able to raise a huge amount of money. I think they even were able to get some CPF funding to preserve the facade of the cinema. And it reopened in May. And um, it's kind of fun. You've been there, Joe. I don't know if the, uh, Bill and you and Brendan have been in, to the cinema yet, but it's really... It's beautiful. And it's not that crowded. And it doesn't smell like smoke anymore. No, it, it smelled like smoke before the fire. It doesn't smell like mold either, yeah. which was also yeah. the prevailing odor it's in that place. It's a beautiful facility. And, and, and I love uh, what they're doing, which is mixing like uh, mainstream and independent films with classics and, you know, being able to, to have a theater that's willing to show uh, old movies that are, that are worth seeing on the big screen. Uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And they have, they bring in a lot of really great special guests. Like we did the, the tick, tick boom um, story a couple weeks ago. And that's the Jonathan Larson um, film uh, about Jonathan Larson by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And they were able to get um, Robin DeJesus as one of the stars and, and um, also Matthew O'Grady, who is, was Larson's best friend. So you really get some really cool things like that, that you don't get at a regular movie theater. In, in its first year, like less than a year, I, I think it, it had some really memorable, uh, it dropped right into the, the local cultural scene uh, and, and is a big part of it already. So that's it, you know, yeah. uh, five years ago, I remember the how bitter cold day when the, when the cinema burned and it was, it was harrowing, you know? We had our Sag Harbor Express um, dinner party that night at the American Hotel. And I just remember all sitting in there, you know, like everyone's kind of in a weird mood, you know, because we just had an election and then the fire came that day. And mm-hmm. um, and suddenly uh, someone said they're pulling the facade down. So we, you know, all rushed out away from our filet mignon to go watch that sad spectacle of the facade coming down. But yep, it's back up. So go see the movie. It's back up and doing well. So that's good. Good news. So our last story on our list is Sugarloaf Preserved. And that is the property in Shinnecock Hills, correct? A piece of land that had been privately owned that was returned. Yeah, what's really cool, Bill, you probably can speak to this maybe better than I can, but um, this was a burial site for, you know, a historic burial site for the Shinnecock tribe on the hillside at uh, Sugarloaf Hill. And it was actually allowed to be developed by Southampton town years ago and a house was built on it. And what's amazing here is that the, uh, the Peconic Land Trust working with the town and with uh, the Warriors Society, which is uh, the Graves Protection Warrior Society that the Shinnecock Nation has, they're buying it, they have bought it. It will end up going to a land trust that's being created by the Shinnecock Nation. And they're gonna tear the house down and return it to its natural state, which is, it's an amazing thing. Uh, they're going to try and rebury some remains of Shinnecock ancestors there. But more important, Bill, this was a huge step just uh, as a gesture for the town to the Shinnecock Nation. Well, it was, it was, 
so amazing to see. I mean, when, when I was a reporter 20 some odd years ago covering Southampton town government, there were discussions about protecting old uh, burial grounds and, you know, and sacred sites. And, um, and there was a lot of lip service for years and years, for decades, actually. And, and nobody ever um, passed any legislation or did anything to protect these properties and the properties um, that were undeveloped at the time became developed and, you know, and all that. And with the, within the last two years, I, I, I guess it is, um, you know, Supervisor Jay Schneiderman and the Southampton Town Board and other entities have, have you know, passed a number of um, legislation that, that helps to, to protect these properties and restore some of these sacred sites. And it's just really a, a, a great thing to see. Um, and I think it goes along with our earlier discussion about, you know, the the uh, the casino and the whole plans and, uh, you know, hotel and, and, and all that. And it's just there's a, a great leadership, um, you know, in the in a Shinnecock right now that that are helping to push these things through. Um, truly a good thing. Well, there you go. Any other parting words at the end of uh, 2021? Only that I got to tell you, there were easily 15 more we we sort of compiled a list of top 25 stories and there were 15 other stories that very easily could have uh been argued for the top 10 and there were probably another 12 that that you could argue could be in the mix as well so it, it just it was a busy year uh, a lot happened this year and uh it was a pleasure and a privilege to report on it that's all good news for us I mean, you know, kept us busy. That's for yeah, sure. It did. We head into 2022 ready to do it all again. <sighs> Absolutely. We aim to serve. All right, everybody. Be careful out there. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. We're done. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 